Amen. Thank you for sharing that with us, singing about the saving grace of God this morning. Uh, I think uh, pretty sure Gretchen's been playing the piano as long as I've known her. And that's been a long time when she's just a little girl. She was playing the piano and it was fun to think back on our church history and relationships um, when New Covenant was first started and was a lot smaller than this. A matter of fact, this would be a good crowd just right here. Uh, you know how to, to this very day we love babies and kind of compete for their attention. But it reminded me of when Gretchen was little and Joy, her little sister, Jojo, was little. She was the church baby and everybody competed for Jojo's attention. So she was kind of spoiled in our church family. But it's so nice to have you back. Gretchen and Macy. Macy, of course, scooted around on this carpet and our hands or knees. Now she's all grown up singing with a microphone. It's amazing to see what God can do. We're in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. And as you know, by now, the message or the main theme of the gospel of Matthew is Jesus is king. And Matthew brings that out many, many times in many different ways. He's fulfilled the prophecies requiring him to be king. He's fulfilled the genealogies requiring him to be king. He performs the miracles and he speaks with the authority that he needs to speak with in order to be king. Jesus is the king and he is also establishing his kingdom. Matthew brings that out. And we're going to learn and be challenged by some kingdom principles this morning. But before I read my text... I'm reminded of a story that R.C. Sproul told, of the late, great R.C. Sproul, pertaining to, to God's grace and fairness and justice. But um, R.C. was a professor for many years. He's a brilliant man, and he was kind of known not only for his brilliance and his way to take very lofty theological concepts and bring them down to people, uh, but he was known for stepping up into the pulpit or chalice, whatever he would like to call, and I think he called it a chalice, uh, with no notes. Like, everybody would say, did you ever see him look at a note? And he would just be talking and, and teaching and using big words and everything, and he never used notes. But he was teaching as a professor in a seminary. And I, I, I think it was every Friday or every other Friday or, or one Friday a month, whatever it was, they were given quizzes. And so they created this habit in the class. On the Fridays, you'd take out your paper, put all your notes away, you'd take a quiz, and then you would hand your quiz to the person to your left or right, and then they would help you grade it and you'd hand it in. One particular day in class, they took out their papers, they took their quizzes, and he said, now hand it to your partner beside you. He said, all right, put an A on it, hand it in. Everybody put the A on it and hand it in. The next quiz day, they took, they um, did their quizzes, handed them to their partners. R.C. said, all right, put an A on it and hand it in. Wow. He did this about three or four times. Then one day, quiz day, they come in and they take the quiz, hand it to your partner, time to grade it. And after that class, well, some of the students were aghast because 
they they whine and complain. You, you can't do this to me. Well, why can't I do this to you? Well, because I didn't even study. And I this will mess my GPA up. You don't understand what this will do to me. Hmm. Interesting way to look at it. Matthew chapter 20. We, be, we ended Matthew 19 with these words in verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus says his kingdom can actually begin in the end. Let's unpack this passage that often puzzles us regarding the justice and the fairness of God. For the kingdom of heaven... It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, and to them, he said, you go into the vineyard, too. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went and going out again about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving, if they grumbled, and on receiving it, they grumbled at their master of the house, saying, These last work only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Here we read it again. So the last will be first and the first last. How many of God's creatures throughout the ages have thought along these terms? Have at one point or other in their lives considered God unfair or unjust, even among believers. Among believers, we give him the benefit of the doubt and we would say, oh, yeah, God's a just God most of the time. But there are those times where he slips. There are all those times where things come my way and I get gypped. Or things don't come my way that should have come my way and I get gypped. And sometimes we get less than we think we deserve. And sometimes in the area of being punished, we get more spankings or lickings or discipline than we thought we deserved according to our actions. 
Has there ever been a time, I ask rhetorically, has there ever been a time where in your thinking, as you struggle and wrestle with the Christian life, that you have accused God in your estimation of being unjust or unfair in his treatment to you? The great prophet Ezekiel ministered to the Israelites that had been judged for their idolatry and among other sins and had been sentenced to exile in Babylon. He was their prophet and he would often remind them of their sins. This is why you are where you are today and the sins of your forefathers. They committed they had committed adultery and he called them to repentance. Of course, they refused to repent and therefore faced exile. As he was reminding of them of their sins in Ezekiel chapter 18, we learn that the Israelites, as they listen to Ezekiel's indictment and they think about their history and they think about their own lifestyle, the things they've done right and the things that they have done wrong, they come to the conclusion that in their estimation, they're actually being punished more harshly than they deserve. They, they've done some calculating of their own and, and weighing justice. They brought out their own set of scales. And according to their estimation or their, their computing, they're getting gypped. They're getting robbed. They are getting treated more harshly than they deserve. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 25, he says, yet you say... The way of the Lord is not just. This isn't right. What's happening to us? Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And really, Ezekiel was saying one of your many sins along with the adultery, is that you are accusing a just God based on your calculations of justice and rightness and wrongness of being unfair or unjust. In verse 30, therefore, I judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord, repent and return from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. I mean, how many times have we done that? Even God's people. Come to these conclusions based on the way I see life and based on how I see other people treated and other nations and even unbelievers get away with this and get away with that. This just isn't right. This shouldn't be happening in my life. I mean, after all, you're my Lord. I gave up a lot to follow you. And God, sometimes you just take things too far. I don't know any other way to put it. You just take things too far. You push me out to the limit. When we don't get our way or when things don't go the way that according to our wisdom, they should. We can it can bring out that hidden sin in us that just stays there dormant until it's given a reason to come out. The accusation and it causes tension in us. And when God treats us in a way that we don't think we should be treated He's withholding something, whatever it is, it causes a tension and it be, begins to kind of get under our skin and then grows and we get more and more uncomfortable. God is inequitable and it's just not right. 
Now, Jesus uses this parable to explain that very line of thought. To explain the way life actually does go sometimes. And one of the things that we've been learning in the Matthew in Matthew as he unravels through Jesus's word, many times the difference between the principles of the kingdom of heaven that Christ is establishing and the principles that we operate by here on earth. A lot of times what we're learning is that there's a huge difference difference, in fact, not just a difference, but exact opposites. Like we think it ought to be this way, according to our flesh or the way that the world operates. And then Jesus comes and says this. It just ruffles us all up. I mean, just in 19, we found that Jesus accepts many that the world had rejected and then rejects many that the world had accepted. And so we're constantly being challenged by the word of God in our thinking. It, it assaults our flesh. It assaults, it assaults our wisdom. It assaults how we think ways our life ought to go. So he begins his teaching with the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then he ends it with that as well. So it's like bookends. So we know what he's trying to teach us here. And in between, he tells us a parable. That's a proverb. It's a truism as far as the kingdom of heaven goes. It's something that you can count on. It's the way it works. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. The first we see in this parable, God's justice. It's really a great story. I mean, you have a landlord or a master of property. And in this case, uh, of an agrarian nature, it's a vineyard. And you read all about the vine and grapes and so forth in, um, in the Bible. John 15, Jesus uses it in a different way. But he owns a vineyard. And as you know, in farming, there are many things that have a harvest time as far as crops go. And when it's time to get those crops up, you have to get those crops up. They don't wait for you. They don't wait for you to get out of bed. They don't wait for you to get your equipment running. Whether your equipment's running or not, it's time to harvest those things. And that's the same way with grapes. And so with a vineyard, you would have your hired hands that are probably there pretty much full-time help. And they maintain the vines throughout the year. John 15 tells us different things that you need to do to them. You prune them and you have to take the dead branches off and get those away and burn those and, and, and train the new vines. Make sure they have plenty of room to grow um, and, you know, help the soil, get the rocks that push up through the ground, get those out of the way so the roots have plenty of room. Just, there's just a lot of care, a lot of nurturing that has to take place in order to prepare that vine for when it's harvest time. So constant attentiveness is in order. And in that, in that um, geographic area, a lot of times the vineyards were grown in tares, like stepped up a mountain. If you've been to Guatemala in the mountains, then you'll know exactly what we're talking about, because though the mountains are quite as steep, um, that's how they grow the coffee beans. That's how they grow the coffee is in tares. And that little flat spot, there's a row of coffee plants. And it's the same way they, they do vineyards. Even actually here in Virginia, there's a few like that. So it could be hard work. I mean, you're up climbing up hills and climbing up mountains. And so you had your full-time workers that would 
take care of that. But when harvest time came, your full-time workers were not enough. I mean, you had a lot of work on your hands. You had a lot of grapes that you had to, to get up. And so what the landowners would do is they would go and try to find help. And in that culture, what that looked like is you didn't go to the unemployment office and have all the stuff and go online and look for jobs. And that day you went to the marketplace. It was the local town, if you will, because workers hung out there. In fact, workers specifically and purposely went to the marketplace early in the morning, hoping to be hired so they could make some money that day. So that was how it operated. If you were a uh, an employer and you needed help and you didn't have enough help with your full-time guys, you go and you pick up some part-time help for the harvest. We um, really, in our own culture, and it's still like this in many places of the world, I remember in Virginia it was like this. I don't know if it still is, but when I was younger and used to visit here in the summers and sometimes um, the local farmers would say, hey, could you help me with, with my hay harvest or help me with... The tobacco harvest, because when it comes in, it comes in and you got to get it up. And so sometimes I would do that. One time we got in a, in a pickup truck here in crew and and uh, I said, where are we going? Where are we going? And we're going into town to get some more help. They went into town and crew and not at the marketplace, but on the corners. There were certain hangouts where people would go. I'm sure it was like this in other towns too. certain places where people that wanted to work would go. And you just went to that corner and you say, hey, we, we need three, three of you guys, you know, and I'll give you this much an hour to help me get up. Hey, I don't see that anymore. I don't know if it still happens, but that's how that culture was. Also, in that culture, you had servants, you had slaves and you had hirelings. Of course, your servants were like your full time workers. They were usually your foremans or something like that. And they had a place to live. They had food because you needed them. Well, the slaves were the same way. Slaves, they were given a place to live. They were given food because you needed them to help you on the farm. The hirelings were a different sort. The hirelings were, in many cases, the poorest of the poor. They were the ones that weren't taken on. By the way, in that culture, sometimes, uh, many times, being a slave was a good thing because it meant you were getting taken care of. Not all slaves were abused. But the hirelings was a different situation. They didn't have a, always have a place to stay. They didn't have a fixed income of any kind. They didn't know if they were even going to be able to put food on the table that day. So they went to the marketplace hoping somebody would hire them. They lived hand to mouth. And so the landlords and masters would go there. And these guys were very, very anxious to get whatever kind of work that they, they could. And... By the way, the Old Testament even set up laws for hirelings or for daily workers, the poor. And they would say, as a part of the law of Moses, you may not withhold a daily wage. At the end of the day, they get paid for what they did. And a lot of that was because that's all the money they had. I mean, that's how they lived. Man, you got, if you don't pay, I need groceries, I need diapers. I got... I need my money. I can't wait till tomorrow. That's the way it was. They also, um, they would, some of the laws were, you know, leave some of the harvest for the poor. Let them work for it. Leave the corners of the fields, whatever, but they need to eat too. So there were some laws and there were some, God has a heart for the poor. And that's the closest thing to welfare you got in that day was a, a corner that was unharvested. 
That's how you took care of yourself. You didn't work, you starved. In Jesus' day, they worked about, I'm told, 12 hours a day. So about 6 in the morning to 6 p.m. Probably six days a week. And uh, they, the first watch or whatever was 6 in the morning. And then the landlord comes out, gets a fresh crop of workers, puts them to work in the vineyard. And he comes back again at 9 o'clock. He gets some more. You know, so as a boss or a foreman, you're always assessing the work and you're looking, well, I got these guys and they've gotten four out of the ten rows done. I better go get some more workers out here or we'll never make it. So he keeps going back to the marketplace and he gets more workers, even up to an hour before. So like it's five o'clock and he's bringing guys back to the farm and they quit at six. So it's what's called the 11th hour. There's hardly any time at all to work. And so really, it's a very common story. It's what how things went in that day and age. Everything's fine. People are getting employed. They're making money. The farmer's getting his grapes harvested. Everything is wonderful until it's time to get paid. And that's where things get touchy. When they line up to get paid. He tells his foreman. Call the laborers in verse 8 and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. So, Jesus purposely does this to bring out this kind of tension. Because if he would have put the, the, the first, la, um, well, the ones that were hired first in the front of the line, you wouldn't have had this. They probably would have been like, man, look how much money I made. I'm going home and i got to get this to the wife or whatever it is and... And, but because he strategically put the others first, well, it brings out this murmuring. And it's that murmuring that Jesus needs to teach us a kingdom principle or lesson. Each was given a denarius, which is a day's wage. It was actually a generous day's wage for a hireling. It is about the same that a Roman soldier would make for a day's work, a denarius. And so it's more than they were accustomed to. But here's how they respond. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. I'm wondering how many of us would have done the same thing. Man, they already worked an hour and they got a denarius. I can't wait to see the figures on my paycheck. But each of them also received the same amount of denarius when they received it. They grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day, which is probably true. It gets hot there and it's hard work. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, am I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. The ways of heaven. So these men are basically challenging God's justice. And they are saying in no uncertain terms, you have gypped me. You have treated me unfairly based on how this day is unfolded. Based on what you paid them. Based on all the work I did and how much I sweat. And they barely sweat at all. This is just not right. It's not about the business practices or 
work ethic. Everybody worked hard. It's about the payment. It's about the reward. It's about the the um, the money there. What's earned and what's deserved. There's a certain proneness in us, is there not? Just give the person next to you a little bit more than what you got and see what it does. You did the same thing. If, if, if you did the same thing and somebody got paid a little bit more, what would that do to you? What would be going on in your head? Or in this case, when you worked, say, 12 hours and they worked one and got the same paycheck. I mean, what gives? You just take something like that and you will see what arises. Because we have this sense of justice. And in our own person, we have a sense of what we think we deserve. And what we think we don't deserve. And just to get to the bottom line real quick, this is what we're unfolding the whole time. It's not exactly how God thinks. Our bottom line isn't God's bottom line. And it's not at all how the kingdom of heaven works. And if that's where we're going, and if that's how we're, if that's what's supposed to be established in our hearts, then we may need to change our thinking and our perception of how things unfold. So they're claiming the landlord is unfair. He worked less. And how does the landlord answer this accusation? Well, he answers it by basically saying there, there's no injustice here. Think about it. There's no injustice here. I fulfilled the law perfectly. I didn't do any wrong to anyone. As a matter of fact, I actually did justice. See? Um, I, I'm doing no wrong. Verse 13. Didn't you agree for denarius? How much you have in your hand? A denarius. Did I fulfill what I said I would and keep my word? And we had an agreement and everything went well. Then I kept the law. Everything is good. Exactly as promised. And he told the other guys, I'll pay you whatever's right. The ones that he brought in throughout the day. So he's purposing to, to be fair. Nothing's changed. He satisfied everything that needed to be satisfied. And yet they claim that God owes them. God's in debt. Matthew Henry said, if God gives that grace to others, which he denies to us, it is kindness to them, but no injustice to us. And bounty to another, while it is no injustice to us, we ought not to find fault with it because it is free grace that is given to those that have not. It leads us to our second point. God's sovereign grace. Not just grace, but sovereign grace. Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? I mean, now he's looking at it logically. This is my money. This is my call to make. And you're judging me on how I use my money? You're judging me on how generous I can be or can't be? Should I have to ask your permission before I write a check to such and such? Maybe you should be in control of the checkbook. And maybe that's what we wanted to do all along. Is be in control of the bank or the blessings. 
Is it right to pay people what you owe them? Is it wrong to pay people more than you owe them? How come all of a sudden God's a bad guy for being so generous? For being so kind? That's the principle of grace. See, really what's happened here is God has rocked the, the principles of the world, not by doing anything wrong, but by, by being so right, by being so crazy generous, so crazy gracious. Hey, you can't do that. You can't be that nice. You can't be that kind. You can't just pour blessings into people's life that didn't even ask for it or didn't even deserve it. That's just not right. Especially if you don't do the same for me. See, the kingdom of heaven principle rocks us sometimes. And it hits home. I know it's hit home in your life if you're a believer. To some degree it has hit home. That somebody else got something in their mailbox or they got this blessing and you didn't get it and you worked harder. They got accolades, they got praise, they got encouragement and you've been laboring and ministering for years and never got such kind words. God does what's good. It's a little hard when we start telling God what he can and cannot do. Or when we feel like we kind of he needs to run things by us first, right? And an agreement was already in place with these guys. I mean, yeah, Denarius, that's great. I'll do that any day of the week. Extra diapers for the kids. But when he goes above and beyond... The kingdom of God is not always reasonable. It doesn't always fit into what we weigh out and sort out. One for you and one for me and one for you and one for me. It doesn't always work that way. Which leads us to the last point. That many times it's God's grace, as good as it is, that reveals how wicked we are. I mean, like, it's one thing when sin brings out sin, but sometimes God's Incredible goodness brings out sin in us. Tension and bitterness. Verse 15, or is your eye envious because I am generous? My version says begrudging. It's the same thing. These guys are jealous. They are envious. They cannot believe what God has done. Or, of course, I'm spiritualizing it here, which is the whole purpose. But they can't believe what the landlord did and the treatment they got. God's like, you're looking at me as if I did something wrong because you didn't get your way. You're putting me in a bad light. What's the problem here? Is the problem the generosity? No, the problem is our own hearts. That's what went wrong in the story. That it wasn't okay for some of these people to have others treated so well. And that reveals that enviness. Jealousy. They couldn't believe it as they watched and made the assumptions. Have you ever waited in the back of the line, so forth, and you see what others have gotten and you and you set your hopes on your expectations and assumptions? God's going to do this. He's going to always oh, he save all their children. He's going to save all mine. I just know it. As if to say, and if he doesn't. Sometimes God just pours it on. I remember 
Um, and John Razima brought it up this morning. And I think you said it's been 12 years since you were in the hospital. Is that right? 12 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. 12 years he was on his deathbed. And um, the way the church handled that was incredible. People gave cards, encouragements, visits. We all lined up out here. Somebody had the idea, let's line up and send them a picture. And we raised our fists or our hands in victory and praise. We love you, John. We miss you. I mean, the church went really all out for John Razima in that time. Just came beside him in ways rarely seen. And the thought crossed me, my mind, of course, as a pastor, is what are the others thinking that have been sick? What are the others thinking that have been in the hospital, maybe even longer, and got maybe one note or one card? No picture. So does, does the extravagant grace all of a sudden become the standard that's deserved? Or is it just, does it just stay up here in the, in the area of this is extra? You didn't do anything to deserve this. And then when we start thinking we do deserve it, like those students under R.C. Sproul and raise our fist at the professor, you can't do this to me because you've been so good to me and gracious to me and I hadn't, worked, hadn't had to work for everything and now you just pulled the carpet out from under my feet. No, you didn't deserve that. See how the tables turn? There are people in this congregation and it's going to continue to happen because it's how the kingdom works. They're just going to be better off than you. They're going to be more blessed than you are. And it's, it's just the way God is handing out the checks of blessing, if you will. And he's good and he's right and he's perfectly just. And it's, it's fair for others to be so blessed. And there may be things in your life right now and you're thinking, where is this? I mean, this family has this and they have, they have all these kids. He's got this job. He's got this natural. She's got this natural voice that just comes out. And I've always wanted that. I mean, how many things, and we just need to know the principle of the kingdom, we'll be happy for them. What we have, no matter how great or small, is undeserved. It's undeserved. And so the way the kingdom principle operates is that we're just, we have this attitude that started in the very beginning chapters of Matthew. A poor spirit, a humility. We're beggars. Before a merciful God, we, we have nothing to bring him. And, he, and, and Jesus has been trying to teach us and train us all along. And he still hadn't let it go. He's saying, you have got to come humbly. You can't bring pride and envy and jealousy into the kingdom or you're going to go bitter and it's going to bring the sin right out. And you're the one that loses because you don't have that joy. And God has just blessed somebody in an incredible way, and all we're doing is feeling sorry for ourselves. Instead of rejoicing with the saints, just like the prodigal's brother. I mean, the, the brother came home and he repented. And the father welcomed him and the brother isn't going to have it. Uh-uh. That's not fair. That's not right. So, we have to kind of decide, maybe even on a daily basis, what kingdom are we going to operate by? Are we going to stay in the world or are we going to step it up? And just see God for the gracious, wonderful, 
worthy triune God that he is. And thank him for everything. Whether it's a Daenerys or two or five or whatever it is. Whether it's a good friend or a mediocre friend or a not so good friend. Whether life goes the way we think it ought to go. Whether we're set. Grace when given is undeserved. So we need to shift our minds. Let me wrap it up with John MacArthur says this. The householder is God, just in case we didn't get the connection. The householder is God. The vineyard is the kingdom. The laborers are believers in the kingdom. The day of work is time. The evening is eternity when we receive our reward. The wage is eternal life. The steward is Jesus Christ, who is given the task of rewarding his own. And all of that comes together to mean this. All who come into Christ's kingdom to serve him, no matter how long, no matter how short, no matter how hard, no matter how easy the circumstance, will in the end equally receive the same full reward. What is that reward? Eternal life. Eternal glory. Eternal Christ-likeness. Those who come first to God will receive no more than those who come last. Those who come last will receive no less than those who come first. Jesus is saying that the eternal benefits of the kingdom of God are the same for all who are subject to the rule of the king whenever and however may be their place or time of service. Now, for those of us that have worked so hard to gain it, we might be disappointed in hearing that. And then those of us are like, man, I just barely squeaked in are rejoicing over this. But the principle stands the same. You see, those that have labored in the jungles for 50, 60, 70 years and sweat and never saw a convert, gave up everything, received nothing greater than what any of us will receive. It's that 11th hour thing. And people that confess Christ on their deathbed and never did an act of service other than having faith in Christ get the same eternal reward as those that labored and labored and labored all their lives and suffered for Christ. It's the way the kingdom works. It's on grace. Grace. We're all conformed to the image of God. We will all see the same God in the same light, receive the same warmth and glory in the vastness of paradise. We want to celebrate God in this life. Not ourselves, not what we think we deserve. You see what the focus was on? As soon as we start turning inward, Jesus is saying, that's what I want to set you free. You keep wanting to turn inward and turn and look at everything and judge it according to your own thoughts and your own needs and your own ways. And it puts you in bondage and you're bitter and you're shriveled up. And I want to set you free from that. Welcome to the land of grace. The parable of the kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.